We're going to be in Romans chapter 4 tonight if you want to uh, turn there. But, uh, you know, uh, in life, uh, we, we, we have to ask ourselves this question uh, as, as a Christian. And that is, do I know the Bible or do I only know what my teachers have told me about the Bible? That, that's a good question. That, this is why we try to do these verse-by-verse verse types of study, because we want you, I want you to understand the Bible better. Uh, I want you to understand the principles. I want you to get the ideas, the, the underlying uh, theology, the things that are there, so that when you hear something that's off, you'll know the Bible so well that you'll know that it's off. And, and, and you'll be able to say, yeah, I get th- this is what it means. I'm not just quoting Pastor Dave. I'm not just quoting uh, so-and-so because they said something. But, but ask yourself, which do I know better, the Bible or the various teachers, uh, what various teachers have said about the Bible? That's a good question. But as I said, we're going to be in Romans chapter 4. And uh, if you're going to uh, share the gospel with anyone who's fighting you on being saved by grace through faith uh, apart from works, then uh, you you could do what Paul does here in Romans chapter 4. He starts off with this. He says in verse 1, he says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? Now remember, uh, last week we let off where he's he's been talking a lot about uh, about, uh, how we are saved by faith, we're saved by grace through faith apart from works and and uh, he, he, we've kind of really finished up the last week talking about that. So he's still talking about that. And so now he brings in Abraham into the, into the discussion. And now, now, now what Jew could argue with, with this reasoning? Think about what he's doing here. He's saying, hey guys, let's talk about, it, about Abraham. And the, the Jews that are listening, they're like, oh, Abraham, he's the guy. He's our example. All Jewish people come from him. He's our, our father Abraham. So... So we're going to use him as an example to see how he was saved. So how was Abraham saved? And the, and the reply comes, oh, well, it was obviously because he was a good man, because he was father of the Jewish people. He was good, so that's why he's saved. No, really. Is that what it says? Paul says, let's take a look at it. Open to Genesis. I can almost picture him in my mind. And he takes them into the scriptures. Now, we start with the fact that Abraham was saved, right? Are we all on the same page there? I mean, what Jew could possibly argue with this? We're, we're not going to disagree on that, right? You're, you're, there's nobody that is saying that Abraham is in hell. Am I, am I right? And we're on the same page there? I'm looking, okay. Uh, he truly had a real and a permanent relationship with God. God said to him, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceedingly great reward. He inherits God. He, he goes to heaven. He, he gets to go into eternity with the Lord. So, so he, he was saved. We know that. So how do works factor into his salvation? Verse 2. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. So, so again, works in Paul's mind and, and really in God's mind, the Holy Spirit is inspiring this. Works leads to boasting. If you think you're saved by your good deeds, 
then you will become arrogant. You'll become boastful. Your, your humility, any humility that you have will be pretend. It, it won't be genuine. It'll be kind of like, like that, oh, shucks, ma'am, kind of humility. Uh, it'll be a false humility, not a genuine humility that says I'm a wicked sinner saved by the absolute grace of, of a loving God who, instead of giving me the wrath that I deserve, brought me out of the pit. So, so if Abraham was saved by his works... He would have boasted. However, how was Abraham justified? Verse 3. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's a great phrase. Credited to him as righteousness. This is right from directly from Genesis chapter 15. So if you would turn back to Genesis 15. We're going to read that in a minute. Uh, but, but while you're turning there, while you're on your way there, let me just talk about this word justification. There's all kinds of ways to explain it, ways to understand it. But in Romans 4 verse 2, we just read it. It says that Abraham was justified. He, he was justified. Was it by works or by grace? Well, that word justify is actually defined in verse 3, where it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So, so when you ask, what is justification? That's a big word. You hear it a lot in the churches. And you ask, what is justification? Justification is when God puts righteousness into your account. It was credited to him. It's like putting something into somebody's bank account. God is saying, I'm crediting righteousness to you. He's saying, here you go. Here's righteousness. It's my gift to you. So how Abraham received this righteousness. So then how did Abraham get this righteousness? Well, we're told Abraham received righteousness by believing God. Genesis 15, uh, verse 6. Let, let's look at it in context because it's, it's even better than, than, you, than you might think. But hey, here we are. I mean, this is in the, the very first book of the Bible. This was, uh, this was written around 1400 B.C. And in it, in this chapter, in this passage, we have the way of salvation. And we see that it's the same way of salvation that we find in the New Testament 1400 years later says in Genesis 15, we'll pick it up in verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram, Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. And if you didn't know, probably most people do, but Abram and Abraham are, are the same guy. Later on in his life, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. Verse 2, but Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me, <clears throat> excuse me, you have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. He's basically saying, thank you for your blessing, Lord. But whatever you give me is, is <coughs> excuse me, will be passed on to somebody that's not even related to me. Because if, if someone in his day didn't have a child and an heir by blood, then the then sort of the chief servant of the household would would uh, gain that inheritance and would would inherit the property. Verse four. Then the word of the Lord came to him: This man will not be your heir, <clears throat> but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside. I, I love the imagery of that. That he took him outside to look. He took him outside and said, "Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them." Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. 
In verse 6, here it is. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it, credited it to him as righteousness. So, so there's a, several really, really neat points in Genesis 15. It says that, that Abram, Abram's shield, that God was Abram's shield and his reward, meaning what? Meaning he had relationship with God. And it says that Abraham believed God and was given righteousness. However, I want you to, to think about what he believed. He, he didn't just believe what God said, but he believed in God. He, he trusted in God. He believed what God said, but the reason he believed what God said was because he believed in the person, the, the character of God. God, I believe you. God, I trust you. I believe what you said because I believe in you. You know, that, that tells us that, that faith is a very personal thing. Uh, trusting God. L- listen, I want you to hear this. This is really important. Trusting in God is not just believing biblical things. It's not believing all the right ideas. Trusting in God is a personal faith in a personal created, a creator. And Abraham had that. It's, it's not just believing the what. It's believing the who. In fact, the only reason you believe the what is because you believe the who. Because you know his character, you can trust the, the, what he says. So, and so what this means, this means that, that doubt, whenever I experience doubt, and I'm not talking about doubt in the sense of that nagging thought that I might battle from time to time, you know, that I can approach and, and deal with with truth. But I'm talking about doubt where you're actually doubting God's goodness, where you're doubting the, the personhood of God. You're doubting his qualities. This is, is not only factually wrong, it's actually a personal issue between you and God. It's more than just wrong facts. It's a personal issue. See, if I doubt God, if I choose to reject faith in God, then I am rejecting God personally. And that's a big deal. However, the flip side of that means that when I do believe in God and I trust him, that's a personal thing too. So I'm not just like, I believe in the doctrines of Christianity. No, it's not about believing in the right doctrines. It's, I believe in God. I, I trust in Him. He is my maker. He's my savior. He's, it's a personal relationship. It's not just a religion. It's a real personal relationship with God. Now, now ultimately in this chapter here, what we just read, uh, this promise relates to Christ. I mean, I mean, how cool is Genesis 15? We have a promise that relates to Jesus here because, it, it, because of the theme of the seed. What I mean by that, he's, he's carrying on this theme of the seed from Genesis chapter 3. You remember in Genesis chapter 3 where God told uh, Adam and Eve, he's, we're told that, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And now he's carrying on that theme and, and so it's going to be the seed of Abraham and through the seed of Abraham, that's in, in, in him, the entire world will be blessed. So we're ultimately here, in talking about the seed, we're talking about the Messiah. So Abraham trusts in a promise that relates to, to, to Messiah. He, he, he had a shadow, uh, 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 just a shadow of it. He had an example of faith in Jesus without fully knowing everything about Jesus. Uh, think about Paul here. Think about Paul writing to 
an audience in Rome where, where some of the people are Jewish, you know, and they're reading this letter and they're like, ah, this is terrible stuff. You have to be a good person. And Paul says, what about Abraham? Exactly, exactly. Abraham was a good person. Paul says, well, what does the scripture say? He, he was saved by faith. He believed God and God credited it to him for righteousness. Boom. And then Paul just drops the mic and walks away. This is a big deal. This is a really big deal. Paul is making a huge statement saying that the father, listen, here, listen to what I'm saying. He's saying that the father of all the Jews, the ultimate patriarch of all the Jewish people, was saved in the Old Testament, in, in the book of Genesis, 400 years before the law was given, he was saved by faith. This is a big statement here. And then he says, what do you think that means for the rest of us? Talking to these Jewish believers, he's saying, listen, if Abraham was saved by faith and he's the father of all Jews, what do you think that means for us? This this is just tremendous reasoning. Verse 4. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However... To the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Again, Paul just keeps drilling down on this. Uh, He keeps drilling into this idea that you cannot mix works and grace or works and faith. It's one or the other. It's not both. Because if you work, it's debt, not grace. It's an obligation paid to you not grace. But if you don't work and you just believe, then that's faith for righteousness. So, so what's happening here, he's showing us that, that the theology of Abraham is actually the same theology of the gospel of Jesus. Nothing has changed. It's just been fulfilled. And why do you, why do you think Paul has to keep repeating himself that you can't mix faith and works? Why, why do you think he had to keep saying that over and over again? Well, the answer is because nobody pays attention to to this. Because we want to boast about something. That's just our human nature. We, like I was saying Sunday, we want to put our little star on the chart and say, I'm good. I'm a good person. Uh, uh, and, you know, Lord, look, I, I know I, I need some grace, but, but I'm pretty good. I just need a little bit. And, and what ends up happening is that this ends up being heresy against the very word of God. Look, look at verse 6 because he, he moves on. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So Paul now having taken Abraham and showing that he is an example of salvation by faith. Now he switches gears and he goes to David. Now, now why do you suppose he's choosing these guys? Any ideas? Anybody want to interject anything? Giving you a chance to speak up. Why do you think he's choosing these guys? Well, he's picking them because they're like prime examples of awesome Jewish men, right? They're they're awesome patriarchs of the of the Jewish people, and he holds them up. and 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 David, here he is. They 
the best king they ever had. Every king that they had after David are all compared to David. You'll see things like, well, he did good like David, or he did evil unlike David. And David was a good king. Now he had some major failings as an individual, but he was a fantastic king of Israel. So he says, he asks, what has David said about the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works? Again, this is, we mentioned this big word last week, this word imputation. And, and this is that imputation, putting it into one's account. Uh, ever had someone impute something into your account? You, you ever go check your, your, your banking account online and you're like, oh, something has been imputed to me. This is good stuff. Doesn't happen very often, but it's nice when it does. It, it's just given to you. And in the scriptural sense, by faith, God simply gives you righteousness. I, I am righteous. I am righteous, not, uh, not because of my own holiness, but because God has bestowed it upon me. How? Apart from works. David describes this in Psalm 32. I'll read it here in, uh, in Romans first. He says in verses 7 and 8, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man who does everything in the law and fulfills the righteousness of God. No, no, that's not what it says. That's what it says at all. It says, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. This is the same idea of accounting. Will never count against him. God just won't put into your account the sin that you've, you've committed. And instead, he puts righteousness into your account. How? By his grace. So let's, let's look at that psalm that this comes from in greater context. Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1, says this, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. So when David says, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, he's doing a lot more in this passage than simply saying it's nice to be forgiven. A lot more. He says there is a blessedness when your transgression is forgiven, when your sin is forgiven, when God does not impute sin to you. And then he describes in this passage how that happened to him, right? So he said, I had sin, but I kept quiet about it. I I held it in. I wasn't repenting, I wasn't confessing, and then finally in verse 5 he says, I acknowledge my sins to you, I turn to God, I confess my transgression, and I want you to notice that's all he did. Doesn't talk about any, any act of sacrifice or any work that he did, all he did was acknowledge his sin and confess it to God, that's all he did. He said, I turn to the Lord in repentance and faith and confession, and God forgave me. And then he sort of universalizes it in verse 6. He says, therefore, let anyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. So, so it's, 
Oh, it's, it's great to be forgiven by grace. Let me tell you my story. I'm a lousy sinner. I held it all in like an idiot. But when I opened my heart and confessed and said, Lord, I'm a horrible sinner. Please forgive me. Boom, grace. I was forgiven. And he says, you should do it too. This, this is it. This is, you know, this is, this is David preaching the gospel to people. He, he's saying, come and get saved is what he's saying. And David offers more than an example. He, he offers a teaching that he generalizes in the Old Testament. But, but I want you to see, this is the same thing that we preach when we go out and do an outreach as a church. You have sin in your heart. You have sin that, that, that comes between you and God. You need to repent of, of that stuff and turn to Christ and put your faith in Him and He'll forgive you. And listen, David, King David, he was guilty of terrible sins, wasn't he? Adultery, murder, lies. I mean, you could go down the line of all the things that he did. Yet, in spite of all that, he still experienced the joy of forgiveness. You know, the thing is, we can have that joy too. When we, first of all, stop denying our guilt and recognize that we have sinned. And by the way, that's not just a one-time thing that happened back when you first get saved. We're going to read a verse uh, in, for, from 1 John 1, 9 in, in just a moment. But, but that, uh, it, it's a verse that was written to Christians in a church. And, 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 and anyone who's a Christian who says, I don't sin, the, he says, you're deceiving yourself. And so we need to stop denying that and be honest about the things that, are gone wrong, that have gone wrong in our lives. And we need to admit our guilt to God and ask for forgiveness. And then, here's the hard part for a lot of us, we have to let go of our guilt and believe that God has actually forgiven us. That's the part where some of us struggle. This can be really difficult when a sin has taken root and has grown over many years or, or when a sin is very serious or, or, when, or maybe when it involves other people and your sin has really caused great hurt to someone else. It's very hard for us in that moment to get past that and to, and to really believe that we are forgiven, that somehow that we, we feel like somehow we have to pay some sort of penance. We have to do something to make it right. And, 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 we, and we, we need to learn to believe that God is actually able and willing to forgive us. We, we got to remember that Jesus is, is more than willing and more than able to forgive our sins. You know, here's the thing. When we struggle with this, in, in, in view of the tremendous price that Jesus paid on the cross, when I say He can't forgive this, that's an arrogance inside of my heart to think that, that any sin that I have is greater than His grace. That's a statement that says, my sin is stronger than the cross. That, that's, that's, and that's not what the Bible says. God words, God's Word declares that sins confessed are sins forgiven. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, back in the 90s, I think it was, there was a series of debates called, uh, ironically enough, it was called The Great Debates. And uh, it was a series of debates between James White, who is a Christian apologist, and, and, and a group of various men who, repre who were representatives of the Catholic Church. And 
And, and each de- debate featured James White uh, against one of those men. It was always a different opponent uh, in each debate. And, and they debated on a lot of different subjects. They debated purgatory. They debated, you know, theology concerning Mary. They debated uh, the, the papacy. They had a debate on the Catholic priesthood. They had a debate on salvation, all kinds of things. There's a whole group of these debates. And they're, they're all like two and a half, three hours long. And I'll tell you that they are not entertaining, but, but they are really good. And if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're, you're going to be witnessing to, to Catholics, it's a really great resource. But, but in this debate, White repeatedly asked those uh, whom he was debating this question regarding this very passage we're talking about. He asked them, who is the blessed man of Romans chapter 4? The first time he asked this was when he was debating a man named Peter Stravinskis, a very a, a brilliant man who's written many, many books. And his answer, when he was asked that question, he said, well, I hope I am. See, see in, in Catholicism, there is, a, there is a sin of assuming that you're saved. However, the, the, in Scripture, it's considered a glorious thing to have confidence in your, in your salvation, so, but according to Catholic teaching, it's arrogant because how do you know if you're good enough? And that's because, uh, and, and I didn't really go into this, but in, the, in their viewpoint, there's, they see it as works plus faith. Uh, that, that you, you, yes, I, I have to have faith. It's the grace of God. Um, and and I'm saved through that, but my works also saved me. And they kind of get around it, skirt around it and say things like, but God is the one who enables the works that saved me and all this sort of thing. Uh, but, but that's what they say. And so how do you really know you're good enough? So if you look on a site like catholicanswers.com and you look up, how do you know if you're saved? You'll see things like this. They'll say, you don't know. And, and it's arrogant for you to say that you do know you should be humble and say that you're not sure if you're going to make it or not. Well, I, I would say, in response to that, I would say, well, I am saved. And, and that's not arrogant. It, it's, it's boasting, but it's boasting in what Jesus has done, not in what I have accomplished. It's, I, I, I'm absolutely certain that he has perfectly completed my salvation. I'm, I'm sure and I'm confident that his death and resurrection is good enough for me, for my salvation, and I am saved. So, so who is the blessed man? I'd say the blessed man is me. Nevertheless, these debates, in, during these debates, none of these men could say that they were the blessed, blessed man of Romans 4. And as they read this, they couldn't apply it to themselves. But Paul says, blessed are, the, are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Is that you? That's me by the grace of Christ, by no good thing that I have done. That's me. How wonderful is that? Look at verse 9, because another objection is raised. In this blessedness, excuse me, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Now, this could be a possible objection. Remember, Paul is having this, this, uh, this diatribe where he's uh, having this back and forth between an imaginary uh, opponent. And so this is the opponent saying, 
uh, basically he's anticipating an objection that, that his. And so, so that, that person or the Jewish believer, or the Jewish person could say, okay, Paul, fine, fine, fine. These are examples of people that were saved by faith in the Old Testament. They were saved without works. They were given righteousness by God. However, they are all Jewish. So this only applies to Jews. Abraham was the father of the Jews. David was Jewish. Therefore, it only applies to Jews. So, and in their mind, it was just sort of assumed that they, that they all have, have to then fulfill other Jewish requirements. So it's assumed you're going to be circumcised and you're going to be under the law. But there's a problem here, though. And verse 10 points it out. It says, under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? And Paul knows his Old Testament, and so, so does the Holy Spirit. He says, it was not after, but before. Now, I, I get excited when I read things like this because it's, it's just, just outstanding, tremendous reasoning from the Old Testament scripture arguing for the gospel. Abraham was righteous by faith. We see that in Genesis. We know that. That's clear. However, chronologically, he was counted righteous by faith before he was circumcised, not after. Abraham was saved, chronologically speaking, before he was circumcised, not after he was circumcised. Therefore, circumcision is not a condition for forgiveness. This is the reasoning Paul is laying out for these Jewish believers. By the way, some of this is great information if you're ever witnessing to a, to a Jewish person, a person who's, who clings to the Orthodox Judaism. This is a great way to present to them, to help them understand that it's not about following the law that saves us. It's about faith in God. It's putting our trust in Him. And imagine, if you would, a situation where Abraham... In Genesis 15, 6, receives these promises from God and then suddenly dies. He's not circumcised yet. But, but right there in that situation, in, by believing God, it says that he's been accounted righteousness. Therefore, uh, we would say, yes, he would be with the Lord. He would have gone to heaven long before if he had never been circumcised. It, it kind of reminds me of what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You remember he said to him, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? And, and, and don't you kind of get that impression from Paul? He's like, he's like, come on, you're, you're reading the same Old Testament as me and you're not getting this? Abraham, David, these guys were saved by grace. How do you not know this? Uh, of course, you, you, you don't need circumcision for salvation. Abraham was saved before he was circumcised. This is the logic that he's using. I love this, you know. The thing is, for us, we, we too can read the Bible and miss the point. That's what they were doing back then. I mean, that's what Jesus told the Pharisees. He said, he said you read the Scriptures in vain because you're missing the point. He said, I'm the point and you're missing it. I'm right here. And we can do that. And, you know, my heart breaks for people who were raised in, in liberal churches. There, there have been people who have been raised for decades in churches where they, they, they're teaching a watered-down, twisted version of the gospel and of the Bible, and they're offering horrible excuses for worldliness and ungodliness. And, and those, those people are, are confused. They, they look at conservative believers, and I, I'm not talking politically conservative. 
Don't think in that terms. I'm thinking, I'm talking about orthodox, conservative, Bible-believing Christians, people who take the Bible literally and, and try to live it out. And, and they look at you, those, these liberal Christians, people grow, have grown up in liberal churches, they look at you and they say, they look at you, and maybe you've experienced this, and they say something like, yeah, you just don't get it. You're just not with the times. You, you need to get into the 21st century. And then you look at them and you're, and you're like, you just need to believe the Bible for what it actually says. But they have spent years not reading it for what it says. Instead, they quote their teachers, not really the Scripture. And in fact, if they do quote Scripture, they often quote Scripture. The, the, the very Scripture they quote is often the thing that refutes them if you actually look at it in context. So my heart breaks for people in that situation. Now, they're still accountable. They, they have the Bible right in front of them. They're, just, they're, they're accountable for it. It's just sad. So knowing that that's possible, let's not miss the application that Paul has here. Paul directly contradicts over and over and over and over the, again the idea that, uh, of, of mixing faith with what? With works. Just to make sure you all were awake. You, you do not mix faith and works for salvation. All right. So then that leads to an, a, a natural question, particularly for the Jewish mind. That leads you to the question, all right then, then what's the point of circumcision? What's the point of it? If this, isn't, if this doesn't save us, and this is they believed because we were Jewish and we're circumcised, we're following the way of Abraham, this saves us, then what's the point of it? What's the point of it? If it's not feeding into my salvation, what's the purpose? Well, in verse 11, he gets into this. And he received the sign of circumcision. The sign of of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. So Paul is saying, God gave you the example of Abraham being righteous before he was circumcised so that you would know that circumcision is not what makes you righteous. What it is, is a sign. Circumcision is a sign. Now, I want you to think about this, because this helps us understand this idea of uh, when it teaches about, the Bible teaches about a sign of things to come. You know, when, when you build a city, uh, you, you go out to the outskirts of the city, and, 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 and what do you put up? You put up a sign. It says city limits, the name of the city. It tells you where you are, tells you what's going on, and, 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 and that's what this is. Paul is actually just quoting scripture here. In Genesis 17, 11, it says, you are to undergo circumcision. He's talking to, God is talking to Abraham. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. That's what circumcision was all along. It was a sign of the covenant. See, see, Paul's theology is not shallow, it's not twisted, he's not devaluing circumcision, he's just simply pointing out the meaning of circumcision from Genesis. And what we have to understand, <clears throat> and what he was trying to get across, is that a sign is not the thing that it signifies. Now, that should be clear. 
From, from time to time, you know, I've seen signs put up on an empty lot. Ever seen a sign that says something like, uh, you know, such and such restaurant coming soon? Ever seen something like that? I always get excited when there's a restaurant coming soon because that's just how I'm wired, you know. And then I've seen situations where I've seen the sign and then I waited and waited and waited and waited, but nothing was ever built. The sign does not make it real. The sign is not the same as the real thing. The sign is appropriate. It's proper. There should be a sign, but the sign isn't the thing. A sign, the sign is a sign. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying that the sign is a sign. It's important. It's real. You know, I remember talking about signs. I remember one time when Julie and I were young, before we had kids, and we, we were living in Idaho with long, long way from our family. And, and one year at the end of our vacation, uh, we, we stayed an extra day and decided to drive straight through uh, on our way home instead of spending the night somewhere. And it was about a 22 to 23 hour drive, you know, very long. Uh, we, were, we were young and stupid, you know, and uh, we thought we could do it. We, just, we did it once and realized that was not a good idea and we never, never tried it again. But I remember on the way back, both of us getting so sleepy that neither one of us could, could sleep to get any rest because we had to stay awake in order to help the other person stay awake because we were both so sleepy. And I remember driving from Kansas City and all the way west and we finally crossed the the Utah-Idaho border and we started to see signs for Twin Falls, Idaho, which was where we were living. And uh, and, uh, she'll tell you this is absolutely, every bit of this is true. As we were driving, every time we saw a sign for Twin Falls, we would start clapping and cheering because it was just something we had to do something to try to keep ourselves awake. The funny thing is we're clapping and cheering at a sign. We weren't actually seeing the city, you know, and we, we didn't stop the car and get out and celebrate the fact that we found a sign for twin falls. No, because it was just a sign. That's all it was. We were excited though, Because the sign was telling us that we're getting closer to our destination. The sign was telling us what's up ahead. So we were excited, not just for the sign, but we were excited because we knew what was coming ahead because of the sign. And that's what this is. We weren't there, but it was coming. Circumcision was a sign of the righteousness that comes through faith. It was pointing ahead to to what God was going to do in the hearts of people and and not just circumcising the flesh, but circumcising the heart. It it says, uh, circumcision says, I'm identifying with this promise of God through Abraham. I'm one of his descendants. I believe what he believed. I'll be circumcised too. And you know what? That's a good thing for a Jewish person to do, but you can be saved without the sign. You can reach the destination without the sign. And you know, there are outward signs of spiritual reality all throughout the Bible. Big one for us today in the church, um, probably the most common, the one that we can understand is water baptism. We We have water baptism. So do I have to be baptized to be saved? No, no, you ought to be baptized because you're saved, but it's a sign. 
It's the same kind of thing as circumcision was. It's proper, it's appropriate, it's right, you ought to do it, but it does not save you. Then in verse 12, speaking of Abraham still, it says this, And he is also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was, before he was circumcised. So, I want you to see this. Abraham is an example of faith while he was uncircumcised. A Gentile can follow that. I can follow that. But he's also an example of circumcision as a sign of faith. A Jew can follow that. So so there's an example I can see from Abraham for the Jew and for the Gentile. Now, And to be a Jew... And to reject circumcision is to reject the covenant of God with Abraham. And that's a big deal. It's a big deal. However, to be a Gentile and not be circumcised just means that you're not a Jew. Nevertheless, you can still believe what Abraham believed. You're just not going to pretend that you're Jewish. You You know, people nowadays, they often do circumcision for medical reasons or cultural reasons. And, you know, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. However, if you're doing it, thinking that you're doing it in obedience to Old Testament law to fulfill the righteousness of the law, then that's a serious problem. And all I can say is you need to read the book of Galatians. So how does this apply to us right now? Well, sometimes, just like the Jews did with circumcision, we elevate issues like baptism or some people it's speaking in tongues or it's maybe it's church attendance or reading the Bible or having quiet time or giving your tithes. And, you know, all of these are, are great, but sometimes we elevate issues like that to a becoming a sign of salvation. And, and we ought not. We ought to say these, these are wonderful things, but they are not what gains my salvation. They are not even proofs of my salvation. You know, you know, I've talked with people, and probably you have too, and, and I've asked them, are you a believer? Are, are you saved? And, and they'll say something like, well, I, I go to church. And, and, and to me, I, I get worried when I hear an answer like that because I think, do you really think that's what salvation is? Going to church? If so, if so, that's sad. That's really sad. Salvation is so much bigger and so much more than that. Are, are you saved? Well, I, I've read the Bible. Okay, so you're telling me that you're not saved. You still need Jesus. There's more than the signs. There's the actual experience itself. Then in verse 13. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, excuse me, heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Now again, it's not through the law because the law of Moses wasn't given to the Jews for more than 400 years after this. I want you to see that the nature of the promise here is that it's simply one-sided. God says, I'm going to do it. Not based on your obedience, not based on anything you do. You just trust me. You just believe me. It's completely one-sided. Turn, turn back to Genesis Chapter 15 again. Uh, We're going to read through this passage. And I want to read it again. I want to read it because it's really at the center of Paul's argument in Romans 4. And I'll I'll pick it up kind of where we left off there in verse 6. 
It says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it, credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So God said, I'm going to give you this land. And Abram's like, well, how, how would I know that's going to happen? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Now, before I move on, before we read any more, let me, let me explain what's happening, what's going on here. We have... In, in many historical records, we understand some of the things that are going on here. There's a lot of records of covenants being made this way. So, or contracts being made this way, where, where you would take an animal, kill it, cut it in two, and then you would place its uh, body parts on, on either side of, of a pathway that you could walk down. And then well, what would happen is each person would walk through the middle of that path reciting their vows for the covenant. So one person walked through saying, I'll do my part. I promise to bring you 60 sheep within three months time. And the other person's walking through on their side of the covenant, on their side of the contract. They said, I promise to give you, you know, such and such number of uh, bundles of grain in the next three months or whatever. And so they, they say these vows as they walk between the animals, and in that process, the covenant is sealed. And, and it's sealed by the blood of that, of that animal, and it's a contract. And the blood is sort of a witness to the contract, in a sense. That's what's happening in this passage. So, so he has the scene ready. The covenant is ready to be made. Then it says, look, look at verse 11. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. So we, there's some time passing here. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and after that, afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached, yet reached its full measure. Now, now, what was the idea of the, of the thick and dreadful darkness? You know, I mean, obviously, he had to wait. There was a waiting period, and he had to wait a long time. The vultures are coming down, and he's chasing them away. You know, and then he has this deep sleep and this terror that comes upon him. Well, the idea is that these are, these are pictures of the hard times that Israel will face in bondage in, in, in Egypt. And that there will be a delay. He's saying, Abram, I'm going to do this. I'm going to keep my promise, but there's going to be a delay and there's going to be some hard times in the process. See, God gives his promises, but oftentimes he takes longer to fulfill them than we would like. Can I get an amen on that? Abraham and many others in Scripture, Abraham stands as, a, as an example of waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting on God's promises. And I would say this is exactly what, what you should do. Wait and wait and wait and wait. God will do what he said he would do. He will always do what he said. But let's keep reading. Verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. 
On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaelites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. So God says, I, I, I promise you I'm going to give you this land. But there's something else that's happened here. Because what we see here is a picture of God passing through the animals in order to seal the covenant. But there's a problem. This is not how these contracts were made. There's a problem here. Because there's only one person walking through the middle. There's only one person reciting the vows, saying, this is what I'm going to do. And the other guy, Abraham, was just watching. Why? It's almost like God is saying, you don't have to do anything. It's almost like it's a one-way promise. It's almost like he's saying you're saved by grace through faith apart from works. It's not about what you do. It's just a promise. God says, I'm going to do it. Just trust me. And we just say, okay. Okay. That's it. That's the beauty of it. This is, and this is Genesis 15, man. I mean, this is the Old Testament. I get excited about this kind of stuff, that this is the gospel. Early in the book, in, in the Bible, there's, this is the gospel. You know, I think so many people think that the Old Testament and the New Testament are, are not in agreement, but they are in perfect agreement. There's a unity in scriptures that is so beautiful. It's, and it's little moments like this where you pull the scripture out and then you go back and forth and you compare the old and the new and you start to see it. And, and pretty soon you're like, oh, wow, God, it's almost as if you just planned it all out. <laughs> well, what do you know? There, there are those, you know, who write novels and books and maybe a series of books. But a good author is going to sit down and figure out the entire arc of the story before they ever start the first book. They're going to know where they're going. That way, as they're writing it, they can lay out hints and they can form plot lines uh, that will all tie together in the end. But they can do that from the very beginning. That's what we see in Scripture. God says, this is my plan all along. And I'm going to show it to you in things like Abraham, with the covenant I make with him. I'm going to show it to you in David, in the forgiveness I offer to him. This is the story all along. The, the point that Paul has made here is what? Abraham and David were saved by faith apart from works, and so are you. The thought of earning one's salvation is based on the erroneous assumption that, that people can somehow cause God to owe them something. That's the only way you can earn your salvation is if you do something to make God owe you something because of something that you've done. But God will, will not be a debtor to any man. You can't make God your debtor. And, and when, we, when we think that we're earning our salvation, then we're saying, God... In essence, we're saying, God, give me what I deserve. But being given only what we deserve would be our worst nightmare. If a person could earn right standing with God by his or her, her works, doing, doing good, obeying the law, then the, the reality is that if, if you could, that would mean salvation is not free. Because then you've just turned salvation into God's obligation. 
like He's making payment for our efforts. If righteousness was based on works, if, if, if it was in any way, if it was based on our works, then our actions would require God to bless us. And if, if God uh, failed to reward our good works, then God would be subject to a breach of contract. And, and really, this way of thinking uh, would actually reverse our roles because this way of thinking makes us, puts us in control and makes God our servant. Because we're saying, I do the good works. Now, God, you have to give me the reward. Abraham found favor with God by faith alone, long before he was ever circumcised. And the focus of our faith has to be on Jesus Christ, on his saving actions, not on our own actions. It has to be on his work, not on our work. Does that mean we don't do works? No, it means that we, do, we don't do works to be saved. But because we are saved, in response, we're going to do good works. We're going to shine our light before men and let them see the Father in heaven and glorify the Father in heaven. So tonight, if you've been, if you've been hoping that somehow you could be good enough to make it to heaven, you, you, if you've got yourself tied up in knots, just relax. Stop, stop striving and start, start believing. Start trusting. Start receiving the real forgiveness that he offers. Your sin is not bigger than his grace and your goodness is nowhere near good enough to make it into heaven. Just receive the grace that he offers. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your grace and we thank you for the picture of it. We see all throughout scripture, even with Abraham and Lord, that uh, it's not about the sign but it's about the actual event. It's not about the sign of righteousness by faith, but it's about the gift that you give us, the, the gift of salvation that is imputed to us, that is, a, that is credited to us, that's put into our account, that you choose not to count our sins against us. You don't put that sin into the account, but instead you put your righteousness. And Lord God, it's not because of any good deed we have done, but it's all because of what Jesus has already done on the cross. And God, I just want to say thank you and we're humbled by this mercy. We're humbled by this grace. And Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to walk worthy of the calling. That we won't try to work our way to salvation, but as a result of our salvation, we would let our works be seen of all men so that they would see the greatness of the God whom we serve. And we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.